life is all about relationships. Relationships are grounded in life-giving communication. So today we're going to come up with a strategy for fighting fair, (laughs) how to turn conflict into something that brings life. We're going to be in a passage we've been several times. It's James chapter 4. I ask you to turn there with me. One of the things I want to point out to you is that we confuse conflict with quarrels as though to have any disagreement itself breaks the ideal of the relationship that God had for us. What we're going to learn today is that conflict is neither good nor bad. It's part of how we grow. There is no growth without conflict, without being stressed and challenged. It's how we respond to conflict that makes it either life-giving or destroying. We're going to read uh, chapter 4 of James, and we're just going to pick up at... um, Actually, chapter 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison." With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. It's interesting how comfortably he puts disorder and the phrase every evil practice as equal results of our sinful. It puts relational disorder in its context. It is critical to the life that God wants for us. Verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Reading on. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. So you kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. (laughs) 
You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's interesting at the end, uh, we've come to this several times because we've explored the internal struggles that are at the heart of most miscommunication that really our quarrels come from what is happening, the longings that happen deep within our hearts. But what we just read is that our hidden needs and desires and our selfishness impact both our ability to receive from each other what we need and we create quarrels instead, and it also impacts our ability to receive from God. So dealing with all that internal stuff that creates all the filters and all the needs that affects all of our communication is so critical. But today we're going to move past that, and we're going to look at conflict. We're going to take this passage, bounce back into it. We're going to take a lot of the things we've taught over the last five weeks and wrap it up into some strategies together. So the first thing I mentioned to you is that conflict is not the problem in communication. For too long, the church has suggested that to have any conflict at all is somehow ungodly. That unity means absence of conflict. That's not true. I want to share with you three things, three reasons why we need conflict. First of all, conflict is normal. Conflict is normal. All conflict is is a difference of perspective. That's all it is. A difference of ideas. It's completely normal. If you don't have that, what you have is sameness, not unity. It's not what God meant. The second thing that we know about conflict is that it's necessary. There's no growth in any way without somehow being challenged. That's what conflict is. It's a situation that creates challenge, opportunity to be stretched, to grow and to learn. Proverbs 27, say this with me. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Does that sound like a painless process? As iron sharpens iron, that's the wounds of a friend, the writer of Proverbs says. Conflict is necessary for us to grow. And the third thing that I think you might agree with me is that conflict is interesting. (laughs) How boring life would be. There would be no jokes. There would be no debates. Conflict creates the interest in life. It's what keeps us moving forward and and looking, wondering how things are going to turn out. What I want you to do is to get past this idea that just because in my relationships, especially my family and my dearest friends and within the church body here, just because we have differences of opinion, that's not a crisis. It's fine that we see things differently. So let's get past the notion that conflict is a problem. It's not the problem. The problem is how we respond to conflict makes it either beneficial or destructive, life-giving or death-bringing. Does that make sense to you? It's in our disagreements that God helps us grow, helps us discover new things. So the question is, how do we respond to conflict? Let's go back to Proverbs 18 and just remind you the importance of that response. Words kill. Words give life. They are either poison or fruit. And then these two words are so critical. You choose. Nobody makes you say anything. It's never anybody else's fault. 
You choose words that will bring life or death. Nobody chooses them for you. There are generally three ways that people react to conflict. I'd like you to try to decide as I describe these three ways, which is your common response. The first is what we're going to call the peace faker. That's the predominant Christian response. Pretend it's not there. Talk like everything's fine. Peace faking avoids conflict. Remember the first week we did the study, I talked about that Mennonite camp that Vitalina and I found ourselves in the years when we were traveling, doing concert and speaking? As Mennonites, pacifism was their big deal. Your first impression was this wonderful, peace-loving place. Nobody said anything to harm one another, and uh, you thought, what an ideal. But the longer we were with those people, because we were the outside and I was the speaker for the week, they each found time to talk to us about how much they hated each other, (laughs) how much they'd been hurt by each other, and none of them had ever talked to each other. Underneath, it was the most volatile Christian camp we had ever been at. Peace fakers. Everything's okay, when in fact, underneath, it's all being destroyed. How many marriages end because couples pretend everything's fine? How many churches finally implode because no one will do the tough stuff of looking at a conflict because we're so afraid that somehow just admitting there's differences is itself a failure? It's not. It's merely an opportunity. Do you avoid conflict? That in itself is a defeat. Second is the peace breaker. The peace breaker thrives on conflict because it feeds the anger, it feeds the hostility. All those things that James talks about where quarrels come from, the unmet needs and desires that remain in our hearts. Peace breakers are so driven by those things that any disagreement is something that they just jump at. And all that brokenness comes out and oozes into the relationships around them. Peace breaking. And then there's the biblical concept. This is the the path of response to conflict that God directs us towards. And, of course, that's being a peacemaker. The passage that we read today uses that statement. I want to read it again for you. He says in verse 17 that the true wisdom that comes from God... And look at the qualities here. First of all, this whole paragraph leads to the final declaration of verse 18. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. This is who we are called to be. And then he goes back and he lists qualities that lead to that person, that peacemaker. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. In other words, it seeks what is true and right before God. The second is peace-loving. Conflict is not the opposite of peace. Quarreling is the opposite of peace. Peace Peace-loving. What else does he say? Considerate. How important is that in good communication? Submissive. Wow, that's the, that's the hard one for most of us. How do you back down and not lose? Submissive. Full of mercy and good fruit. Here's another one. Impartial. <laughs> Impartial. Able to sit back and look at the circumstance with fresh eyes, not your own biased eyes. Impartial. And 
sincere. Peacemakers love sincerity in themselves and seek it and offer it to others. That's what we want to be, peacemakers. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called, what's the phrase? Children of God. Wow, think about that. God so values what it means to be a peacemaker that he says that marks someone who is my child. Why? Because it's the heart of God. God is the ultimate peacemaker. He brought peace through the work of Christ on the cross and allowed us to be restored, reconciled to him. So when we are peacemakers, we show most accurately that we are sons and daughters of the great peacemaking God. That's what we want to be. So with that in mind, let's talk about what we're going to call rules of engagement. Now, this is really not a verse-by-verse study. We've talked about a lot over the, the last few weeks, and what I want to do is take all of that and wrap it up in some practical strategies. And I want to start by addressing what our goal actually is. If we get this right, it will be the rudder that steers us correctly through our disagreements. What is the ultimate goal of resolving a conflict? What do you think it is? Understanding. Okay, understanding. What else? Peaceful solution. solution. What else? Connection. Connection, relationship. Okay, a a forward path instead of retracing and venting and rehearsing the old failures. That's the dark side of us, and that's true. (laughs) If we're honest, what we want is our own way. So how do we reprogram ourselves and aspire for a different goal? I want to suggest three goals that ought to be paramount in our thinking. The first is the glory of God. Whatever you do, listen to this, in word or in deed, you do it all for the glory of God. There is nothing that we're a part of that in the end we don't want to result in God getting the glory. And yet, would you agree with me that there isn't any situation that gives God glory less than our conflicts and arguments? What if we entered into a a conflict and said, first and foremost, I want God to be glorified right now in this moment. Second, the gospel of peace. We are a gospel community. Everything we are about is to bring and spread that gospel into relationships and lives around us. The gospel is about grace and forgiveness and peace. And then the third is the good of all. If I could just step back and remind myself Even in this moment, I want God to be glorified. I want the gospel to be experienced and lived, and I want the good of everyone who's in this circumstance. If I'm able to use those as my guiding point, my guess is much of what I just find myself selfishly falling into in conflicts will just fall away. It's about what you really want out of the conflict that guides how you are in it. Does that make sense to you? You want to interact with that for a few minutes? Gene. The quarrel would dissipate. The conflict would produce life, right? Because conflict is necessary. Yeah, done. There's a good question. 
do the rules as to how we are to conduct ourselves as Christians change when we are having conflict with people who are not Christians? Yeah. In essence, we can never control the other person. What we can control is how we show up in that moment. And when I'm having a conflict with someone who especially doesn't understand the gospel, doesn't understand grace, all the more I want them to be able to glorify God. Isn't that what, isn't that what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12? Live such good lives before the world around you that even if they want to curse you, in the end, they'll glorify your Father in heaven. So when I'm in a conflict with someone who's treated me very badly in business and I want to act out, and I want to yell and scream and pout and get my way, my first thought ought to be, this moment's a great opportunity for me to give glory to God, to not do what they're accustomed to getting from others, for them to see something else. This is a great opportunity for me to live out what the gospel means in my life by living out grace to these people. This is a great opportunity for me to think about the good of this person, not just my own good and needs. I think that should guide us always. Am I suggesting that if we do these things, that means every conflict will result in blessing and joy at the end of it, that it'll all go well? By no means. What I am saying is that each of us can be responsible to choose the right path. God will always honor that. We are sowing a harvest of righteousness. It's not about the response of the other person, but all the more When two people are committed to Christ, if both come at it in this path, you expect and believe that peacemaking ought to result. 1 Peter 3.11, very simple verse. Say it with me. Seek peace and pursue it. There's another thing that would just be a simple thing for you to have in your mind when you come into conflict. Just that reminder, seek peace and pursue it. What would that look like? What I've settled on is seven steps that I think wrap up all the things we've learned from Scripture. I'm going to take you through them quickly. The first thing we need to do is to affirm. I need to remind myself when I'm getting drawn into this conflict of the value of this person to me, of the value of this person or these people to God. I need to affirm the priority of giving glory to God. So, one of the very first things we need to do is to affirm our care and love for each other and our value. The second thing is to discover. Remember what James 1.19 says, everyone should be quick to listen. What did uh, the message translation say? Lead with your ears. Lead with your ears. Be quick to listen because we're so fast to rush in and argue our point and to try to win. If conflict is going to move towards resolution and a life-giving experience for everyone, there needs to be a discovery phase that happens very early on. The discovery phase says, what am I missing right now? What is it that I'm not getting that's contributing to this conflict? What are we all missing? What do I still need to understand? Let me ask you a question. How many arguments that you've been a part of do you think would never have happened if you had just stepped back and really looked at what was going on in the first place and looked for accuracy instead of presumed that your assumptions were correct? You have to have a discovery phase. You have to come into a conflict curious because the conflict is nothing if it isn't an opportunity to learn. 
There ought to be a lot of questions that go on in a discovery mode, not declarations. So I affirm the value of the person. And then I, I go into a discovery mode. And then what that leads to is the third thing, which is to reconsider. Reconsidering says, okay, I jump to a conclusion. Now that I've discovered other things, let me reconsider what I was feeling. Let me reconsider what I had assumed, what I had concluded. Is there something else besides what I brought into this that now needs to be where I'm standing on this issue? I'm going to affirm the value of everyone in it, and I'm going to affirm the goals. I'm going to discover what I'm missing by staying curious, by asking questions before I make declarations. Based on what I hear, I'm going to reconsider what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking. Fourth, acknowledge. Acknowledge. We need to say, okay, so here is what I I think we're saying. Here's what I think you're telling me you're feeling. Instead of acknowledge, what we want to do is argue what we heard, right? All too often, arguments become about, that's not what you said, or that's not what you did. You know, people say inaccurate things. People say things angrily. People say things sinfully. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's really going on in their heart. Rather than being angry at how it was said, look at what need is really being expressed. There needs to be an acknowledgement of what the other person's bringing. There needs to be an acknowledgement of any wrong, any confusion. We have a hard time saying, I'm sorry, because we're afraid I'm sorry is an admission of guilt. It can be an acknowledgement of confusion. And yes, it can be an admission of wrongdoing. But one of the most important things in acknowledging is to say, I'm sorry. All of that is part of a discovering, growing, learning process that then finally leads to solution. Now that we have this understanding, what is the right path for us together? Might not be what you want, might not be what I want. Certainly, what is it that God wants? What will be for the good of all of us? That's solutioning. And then, and this is where often even good conversations don't have legs to them because we don't commit If we're going to really resolve conflict, we need to commit to the solution, to the acknowledgments. We need to be counted on. You know, one of the things that destroys relationships is people over and over and over again retreading the same issues, the same arguments. You come to a conclusion, then people want to back up and be in that pain and be in that question all over again. We have to make a commitment that says we're done. We've decided where we're going. Together we're committed to this. I am personally committed to my promise here. And then finally, I think when peacemaking really occurs, not only is there a cause for this, but I think it's, it's the final piece of the process, and that's celebration. Celebration is really the bookends of the process partnering with affirmation. Affirmation is your value to me. Celebration is that we have worked through a process that confirmed that and reminds a person that no matter what we talked about, you are more important to me than any of the issues that we're wrestling with. Isn't it great that we're able to have this, that we can love, and we can move forward together? There's a celebration in that. I appreciate so much our board because they're willing to speak honestly and assertively. And when it's done, we all hug and say, isn't it great that we can talk about this stuff? There's celebration that the peace of God rules. I I think that's seven really good steps that would help us move forward in a way that 
accomplishes what the goal really ought to be, that God is glorified, that the gospel is manifest, and that good is sought and experienced by everybody in the process. Now, if you do that, will that guarantee that everything will go well and that the person on the opposite side will magically react in a way that honors God? No. So in the end, there's nothing I could give you that will guarantee resolution because resolution can only be as strong as the emotional and spiritual wholeness of both sides of the conflict. But what I can tell you is that you acting right, first of all, models. It is the only hope for real peacemaking to occur. It also teaches those around you how to handle conflict, and I think is a way of sowing righteousness into them, whether they admit it or not, in that moment. And finally, it's the right thing to do. There's that verse in Romans 12 where Paul says, and let's say this together, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So, listen to what what Paul's saying. He's being honest. If it's possible. Is it possible? Well, I don't know. It might be possible. So, here's a different standard. So far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's what we can own. I can say today, as far as it depends on me, I will be a peacemaker, sowing a harvest of righteousness. I think that's a powerful thing for us as a spiritual community to commit to with one another. We're going to close by saying the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.